listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life podcast. I'm Janine Strong, and every two weeks, I have an inspiring conversation with an ordinary person leading an extraordinary life. And my conversation today is with Dr. James Hart. Dr. Hart is the founder of the BioCybernaut Institute and has dedicated his life to the research and development of brainwave training. Dr. Hart has authored and co-authored more than 60 papers and professional presentations, and he has over 30 patents. Dr. Hart has earned a national reputation as a preeminent research scientist for his 40 plus years of work in biofeedback. Hi, Jim, how are you? Hey, Janine, it's wonderful to connect with you. I know, it's been a long time, and I think it's taken us, what, maybe three months to get this finally done? <laughs> you know, there have been, I've been, uh, two of those three months, I've actually been away in Europe. I know, you've really, I've uh, been traveling a lot. I'm actually very impressed with your ability to uh, handle time zones and do all that traveling, and, you know, you must have an incredible reservoir of energy. Well, it comes from alpha brainwaves. Ah, well, well, we'll certainly get into that. So I'd like to start with uh, how you became interested in this whole technology and, and this training. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, one of my dear friends, uh, Greg Stewart, mm-hmm. who was the first person to buy a diamond dozen package of brainwave trainings uh, back in about 2005 or so, you would pay uh, in advance for 12 trainings and get a 20% discount. Mm. Doug, uh, he was so interested in the process that he gave me a book called Primal Branding. And in it, it describes seven hallmarks of any company that goes global. And he said, Jim, BioCybernaut has all seven of these hallmarks. And the number one hallmark is an intriguing founder's story. So here comes the <laughs> intriguing founder's story. Okay. Great. Uh, Jim Hart was a senior in uh, physics ma- major at uh, Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the fall semester of his senior year. And he came out of the student union after lunch and saw a big hand-painted sign where every letter was a different color. And the sign said, Dr. Joe Camillo will talk on brainwaves and consciousness. And it gave a time that was just 10 minutes hence. And the building was just a few steps to the left and Jim Hart didn't have a class, so he went. (laughs) Absolutely intrigued. Now he had been, he had a very good friend who was studying phenomenological psychology at Duquesne University also in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And this was philosophical and while very interesting, it was sort of uh, airy-fairy and not measurable. So all of a sudden, Jim Hart realized that there is a way to measure consciousness, a way to measure activity in the brain. It's called electroencephalogram or brainwaves. And so he went to the library and in every spare minute of his senior year, he read everything he could find on the history of brainwaves, which went all the way back to actually 1908 when her doctor, Dr. Hans Berger, secretly discovered the brainwaves. He was in search of the basis of ESP. He mm-hmm. kept it for 10 years while he carefully researched it. 
And uh, then in 1918, he published, created a sensation, brainwave measurements, you know, spread all over the world. They became useful in medical and other kinds of applications. Uh, but nobody ever thought to do feedback on brainwaves. And Dr. Joe Camillo was a sleep researcher uh, studying uh, sleep, measuring brainwaves. And he literally accidentally discovered that if you, you know, made a comment about somebody's nice alpha wave, that there would be another one and then another one. And so he automated it. And in April of 1962, he presented a paper at the Western Psychological Association meeting in San Francisco, documenting for the first time in human history that humans could voluntarily control their own brainwaves. This created a sensation. People were calling it electronic zen, and most people didn't know how to do it. Most of the public studies failed from bad procedures. But there he was on my campus talking about his work, and I became very, very informed. Mm-hmm. So, now we go through the fall and the spring semesters and I graduate and I've got my degree in physics and I jump on my Triumph motorcycle and I run into Canada and across uh, North America and then down uh, to San Francisco where I show up at Joe's lab and I volunteer as a research subject. And it was the most fascinating thing I've ever done. It was very primitive. One electrode in the middle of the back of the head, a, a couple of ear clips is referenced, a ground on the forehead, and one tone, which would get louder when I made more alpha waves, and one score that would come up every two minutes for a few seconds and quantify the energy that I put out. Well, I had three days of this, the most fascinating thing I'd ever done in my life. Oh, I want more. And on day four, I go back, but they're not doing any studies. I'm all disappointed. But I'd learned a little bit about how Joe Camilla's lab worked. His girlfriend, Joanne Gardner, worked in the lab. And I went to her. She'd become friends. And I said, Joanne, would you take me downstairs, hook me up so I can play a little? And she said, oh, sure. So, you know, I wasn't anybody's research subject. And she put a few electrodes on, popped me in the chamber, started the equipment, not running the polygraph because, you know, there was nobody to monitor, you know, make sure the paper didn't jam or the inkwells didn't run out. And mm. there's nobody's data. And then she left. She went upstairs. She got involved in her work. Later, lunchtime came and with nine other members of the staff, they went out to a 12-course Chinese lunch. And <laughs> course 11 of this 12-course Chinese lunch, she goes, oh, my God. And she remembered that there was somebody in the chamber. And so all 10 of them rush back to Paul Gorman's VW camper van. They hurtle back across town, rush up to the building, run inside, rip open the door of my chamber, and interrupt the late stages of a most incredible adventure. Now, remember, I, I was a physics major, mm-hmm. um, Protestant fundamentalist. I had never even been drunk. I didn't know what altered states of consciousness were. I had no clue about meditation. And so, but there I was, out of body, Uh, having ego disintegration, flying around the universe, uh, encountering discorporate entities. Uh, It was a lot. Oh, my. Fundamentalist. And so so now the door is ripped open. It was the late stages of this incredible adventure. And uh, there's 10 people standing there, and they want to know what happened. And as I'm talking about my experiences... Paul Gorman, who'd traveled in India with his wife the summer before, would say, oh, that's a meditation experience. Oh, that's a meditation experience. And so I began to be informed that what I had experienced were experiences that normally only occur to very advanced meditators. 
but it had happened in just four days with this amazing technology. And so I figured somehow I know this is going to be my life's work, but, and I obviously going to be dealing with some weird stuff. So I better ride my motorcycle back across the country, go to Carnegie Mellon now, it changed its name and register for a PhD program in psychology so I could get my rational mind stamped with some form of approval so people would take me seriously when I would talk about weird stuff, like out-of-body and ego disintegration and things like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. That is... <laughs> wow. I mean, how did you... How how did that affect you? How did you feel about well, that? For the next three days, I walked around. I was so much out-of-body that my feet didn't touch the ground. <laughs> my motorcycle back across the continent to Pittsburgh. It was like flying. It was so beautiful. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's a great story. Uh, so you obviously were hooked. <laughs> yeah, very much so. In fact, I, I, well, I don't have a job. Uh, I don't have a profession. I don't even have a career. What I have is a vocation. Mm-hmm. And my vocation is to raise awareness and to end suffering for as many people as possible, as rapidly as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so how do you do that? Well, I've created uh, brainwave feedback training centers under the name Biosternaut Institute in Canada, in Germany, and uh, in uh, the U.S., currently in Sedona, Arizona, uh, from where I'm now speaking with you. Mm-hmm. Now, didn't you used to be in California? Yes, for many years. Uh, first at the University of California, San Francisco. I had a large federal grant there, large private grants. And uh, uh, that's where I uh, demonstrated uh, to the highest levels of scientific uh, peer review that uh, my training, my alpha brainwave training, would reduce both types of anxiety, state anxiety and trait anxiety, and would also reverse aging in the brain. My federal grant was entitled Anxiety and Aging Intervention with EEG Alpha Feedback. Mm-hmm. Now, and how does it, how does it uh, reverse, does it reverse aging in the brain or just stop it? No, it actually reverses it. Let me, and let me speak to that. Okay. Um, once atherosclerosis sets in, hardening of the arteries, mm-hmm. um, which can happen early in life, depending on your diet, your genetics, your lifestyle, uh, it can happen as early as your 20s. And once it happens, once atherosclerosis begins, the frequency of your alpha brain waves start to slow. And they slow eight-tenths of a hertz for every decade of life. And once they drop off the lower end, which is alpha, it's eight to 13 cycles a second. Most people are around 10. Okay. And when they slow below eight, people enter senescence or senility and usually die soon thereafter. And so this decline of the frequency of the alpha is inexorable and is associated with the aging process, but the biocybernode alpha training actually reverses this aspect of aging in the brain. Wow. How does it do that? Oh, very good. (laughs) Um, The process of, let's say I ask you to take your right hand and then point you, make your pointing finger stick out from the other fingers, and mm-hmm. then touch your nose, the tip of your nose. Okay. So then we ask, well, how did you do that? Well, my request to you went into your ears, 
And then it stimulated a whole bunch of nerves to fire. And then instructions were sent down the nerves that control the muscles of the arm and the wrist and the hand. And then you touched your nose. Now, ultimately, nobody knows how that happens. We cannot describe how an intention gets translated into an action, but it does. And so when you do brainwave feedback training, you are learning how to increase your alpha brainwaves. Now, there are many things that the brain has to learn to do to do that. One of them I found is that the brain learns how to dilate the blood vessels that feed the brain. And so, for example, there is a condition called Raynaud's disease in which mm-hmm. there's bad circulation uh, to the fingers uh, and the toes, which turn blue and they're very painful. And allopathic doctors, the only way they know to cure that is to cut the fingers or the toes off, amputate, then the pain goes away. Mm, so, not a very good cure. No, 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 it's not a very good cure. Uh, but temperature biofeedback offers a better way. You put thermistors to measure temperature on your fingers or your toes, and then you report that information to the person with like a flashing temperature, you know, that uh, whatever the temperature is, to a tenth of a degree, will flash every second, or maybe there can be a tone that goes beep, 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 if you're warming, or beep, 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 if you're cooling. <laughs> with this feedback, people learn how to warm their hands, and the physiological way that's done is to learn to dilate the blood vessels that feed the fingers and the toes, and then more warm blood flows out, to these previously constricted blood vessels, the hands and toes warm up and the pain goes away and you don't need to have them amputated. Well, in the same way, in ways that nobody can actually formally precisely describe, when the brain is trying to make more alpha, it figures out somehow a way to send the signal to the vascular system in the heart, hey guys, we want more blood up here, dilate these blood vessels, and they do, and more blood flows to the brain and the brain loves it functions better. It makes more alpha waves. So is this a, a process of, <clears throat> with the feedback of trial and error, then of, of the person um, learning how to send the signal? Um, say the, ask that question again. Yeah, I, maybe I didn't ask it very well. So is it kind of a, <clears throat> excuse me, a process of trial and error? Um, where the the person is learning what to do or, or what what action or intent. I'm not sure how to say it. Uh, oh, you said it perfectly. That's wonderful. All okay. learning involves trial and error. Hmm. To learn, you have to try something, and then you need feedback on how well you did. And based on the feedback, you modify what it is that you're trying. And that's the, why this is so much better than meditation, because... In meditation, you're trying to do the same thing. You're trying to tune in to this very subtle internal signal of your alpha brainwaves, which are produced deep within the brain in a structure called the thalamus, Mm -hmm. the brain within the brain. And in the thalamus, there are pacemaker cells for your alpha. And they run 24-7 as long as you're, you know, alive, awake, Mm -hmm. and they're always urging the uh, people uh, you know, the brain to be in alpha. And uh, 
if you are, Shakespeare said there are the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. All this gets in the way, and those little signals from the pacemaker cells don't make it to the cortex. Or if they do, the, the pacemaker cells are out of phase, and so their tiny little signals don't add up. So what you learn when you are given this alpha feedback is a whole bunch of complicated things and uh, because the brain is you know, very good at learning when you give it feedback, one of the things it learns to do is to, of course, dilate the blood vessels that feed the brain. But also, it, it, the brain is learning how to synchronize the uh, frequencies and the phase of those little pacemaker cells deep within the brain in the thalamus. Now, we can't tell you how to do that, but by giving you feedback where the tone gets louder when your alpha waves get bigger, the brain just figures out how to do all this on its own. And the result is amazing rewards. Like I mentioned, anxiety goes away, but also depression and intelligence increases. IQ goes up 11.7 points. Creativity expands by 50%. It's absolutely awesome how much more creativity people have. Wow. Emotional intelligence, which is EQ, mm-hmm. say it's uh, at least three times as important as IQ for success in life. They call EQ or emotional intelligence the master skill for success in life. And the Alpha One training at BioCyberNaut will boost your EQ by 15.8 points. Now, that given research that's been done all over the world on the value of a one point increase in EQ to your annual income. And that number is $1,300. And that's an average that includes, you know, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and as well as, you know, advanced countries like Germany and um, Canada and the U.S. Mm-hmm. So that, what that nets you is obviously an advanced country of more opportunity. So it'd probably be more than $1,300 annual increase uh, in your income if you live in an advanced country. But you multiply just that global average, 1,300 by 15.8 points, and you come up with over $20,000, which means the training will more than pay for itself just the first year. But if you live another 20 years, there's over $410,000 more income that you'll make by having done the BioCybernaut Alpha 1 training. Fascinating. Wow. Okay, let's talk about Alpha. What is Alpha? Why is Alpha so important? Well, alpha is, uh, it was called alpha because it was the first brainwave that Dr. Dr. Hans Berger discovered back in 1908 with very, very primitive equipment. It was a ballistic galvanometer and magic lantern technology. So uh, it's not the fastest brainwave. It's not the slowest. But the reason that it was first to be found is because it's the biggest brainwave. It typically has the largest amplitude. Now, it is lower in anxious people, but... Alpha amplitude is bigger than beta or delta or gamma or theta in most cases. And so it's a sinusoidal uh, rhythm. As I mentioned earlier, it's uh, produced by pacemaker cells in the deep brain in a structure called the thalamus. And uh, it is um, sensitive to disruption by sensory input. This is why meditators close their eyes and go to a quiet place. I mean, you can try to meditate with your eyes open on a busy street corner in a large city, but it's not going to be very effective. And so you reduce the sensory input, and then you can more easily tune into this subtle internal signal. So 
Mm-hmm. What alpha waves are. Okay. And um, why do you focus on alpha as opposed to delta, theta, beta, gamma? Janine, what a wonderful question. We do provide trainings on those other brainwaves you've mentioned mm. and on delta, but those are advanced trainings. Uh, the, the reason that we start with alpha, and it's a precondition for any of the other trainings, you must do alpha one. After alpha one, you have the option, if you want, to go uh, to theta one. Now, we sometimes, when we look at people's brainwaves, we'll recommend that they do an alpha two or maybe even an alpha three before they go on to theta. And the, the primary reason, well, there's actually two primary reasons. One is that alpha is a bridge state. Where you have one foot in ordinary waking consciousness, and you have another foot in the magical, mystical inner reality. And alpha kind of goes back and forth. Whereas theta waves are much more disconnected from phenomenal reality and are much more associated with uh, deeper mystical experiences and deeper meditative experiences. And so people can do a theta training if they insist after they're off of one. But as a practical matter, there's everybody has alpha pretty much all the time. Those generators in the thalamus run 24-7. But if they're not synchronized, the alpha waves are going to be low. They're going to be small. But at least there's something there. And so there's something to do feedback on. Not so with theta. Theta tends to be there or not there. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with your level of arousal. Like a simple instruction for making theta is head straight for sleep. And just before you go unconscious, make a sharp left turn and hang out there. And so it takes a while for people to sink down in their awareness level, in their arousal level, so that they can be able to begin to train theta. And so if somebody were to do a theta training without having done an alpha, which we don't allow it by a cybernod, then they might lie there in the theta chair. And yes, we have people lie down for theta and delta trainings where they must sit quite upright and erect in alpha training. Why is that? uh, Well, let's get to that in a moment. Okay. Okay. So if, if they're in theta, good question. If they're in theta, they're lying down, and the monitor shows their scores uh, every three minutes in theta, every two minutes in alpha. The monitor is suspended from the ceiling, uh, facing directly downward. So they're lying on their, you know, in the theta chairs, uh, kick way back, and they open their eyes, and the monitor is right there hanging, you know, from the ceiling. And so, but in theta, you may, if you, you know, haven't developed enough theta through alpha trainings, uh, then you may lie there for a minute or two and, and basically have no feedback because you're not making any theta. Mm. Where with every alpha training you do, your theta, particularly your frontal and then your central theta, begins to increase. And so this is why we have people, why we have people do at least one alpha training before they graduate to their first theta training. So um, then... Uh, your question about the the posture. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first came into the field, uh, ninety and doing my doctoral dissertation, ninety percent of all the published studies showed that people could not could not learn to increase their alpha. And as I got into studying these failures uh, and compared them with the few papers that had successes, it was all due to methodology. It was no fault with the people, but uh, 
in, in the failure papers to train alpha, they would have the people lying down or partly lying down, or they would have the lights on, or they would have them have their eyes open, or they would only let them do, like Jackson Beatty did a study, where he'd have people do alpha training for eight minutes and then turn the lights on, get up, run around the room, and then sit back down and try to do more alpha training. <laughs> what was that about? <laughs> well, you know, people were ignorant. They had not done the training themselves. And so they were just ignorant, even in terms of the technology. A lot of the early failures used what uh, was called percent time feedback, where they would arbitrarily set an amplitude threshold. And if your alpha was below that, you didn't hear anything. And if the alpha went above that, a tone, a steady tone came on and it stayed on until you dropped below that threshold. Well, this measure is actually in my careful analysis is a rubber ruler. It suffers from gauge variance. And depending on where you set the threshold, the scores will be big or small. And then if your alpha tends to go up, you, you, you peak out and then all the scores are, you know, running around 98, 99%. And you're not learning anything. So I actually did a formal paper called Conflicting Results in EEG Feedback, Why Amplitude Integration Should Replace Percent Time. And this was published in the Biofeedback and Self-Regulation Journal. And all the researchers out there went, oh my God, we can't use that measure anymore. And so everybody switched following my guidance to using the integrated amplitude measure. And if you do feedback on the tones, the bigger the alpha gets, the louder the tone gets. It's linear, it's proportional. It's not a binary off and on which is sorely lacking in information. Mm. Posture is very important. Now, if you are trying to do a theta training sitting up, when you go into theta, you lose postural tonus and you could slump over and even fall out of the chair. And so you don't want to try to do theta or delta sitting up. Uh, and you must do alpha sitting up in order so that you have the appropriate arousal level. Arousal varies as an inverted U-shaped function uh, alpha varies as an inverted U-shaped function with arousal. So at low arousal, like sleepy or coma, alpha is low to gone. And in high arousal, like anger, irritation, fear, alpha is also gone. Alpha is maximized by being in the middle range of arousal. And you can't be there if you're lying down or even partially lying down. Oh, interesting. Huh. Because I don't, like, when I meditate, I have to lie down or be partially lying down because... I always start nodding off and my head snaps. <laughs> well, you see, then you're not meditating. Then you're not meditating, my dear. You're taking a nap. Ah, okay. okay. <laughs> at, one point, at one point, a TM meditator, a woman TM meditator, did a study of other TM meditators measuring their brainwaves during their supposed uh, TM meditation. Mm -hmm. And what she found was that 60% of them, almost two-thirds, were actually taking a nap. They were in stage one or stage two sleep, and they were not at all meditating. Well, that would be me. Because okay. <laughs> that's what it started was what I was doing, TM. <laughs> uh -huh. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, see? <gasps> oh, interesting. So what you probably want to do is you want to get a neck pillow. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then you, Yogananda, I studied in the Yogananda tradition for seven years. I was actually initiated by one of Yogananda's direct disciples into Kriya Yoga. And Yogananda said, when you're meditating, imagine that you have a hook in the top of your head and your whole body is suspended from that hook. So your spine is absolutely straight up and down. Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing that, then, well, yeah, there are benefits of taking a little nap during the day. But it's not meditating. Don't kid yourself that it is. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. <clears throat> okay. Well, I'm going to have to reevaluate that. <laughs> so, okay. So when you're doing the alpha training, now how does, how does this help to alleviate stress and anxiety? What, what's, what's happening? What, what's, what's changing that allows you to be able to, is it that you're dealing with stress and anxiety um, in a more uh, mm, helpful way? Or is it that you're just not feeling stress and anxiety? Well, both of those and more. Your question can be answered at many, many levels. For mm. example, if you were uh, studying brain biochemistry, and you were looking at transport of ions across cell membranes, potassium ions, sodium ions, things like that. Um, Sherrington, I think, called nerve conduction a fleeting self-mending leak down the axon. Mm -hmm. And so there are many levels at which you can just study what's going on. Uh, it's rather tedious, cumbersome, and invasive to have needles in the brain, drawing out fluids, measuring you know, what's going on at the... Uh, ionic level in the cell membrane. And so we work at a much higher level, which is the alpha waves, which can be measured non-invasively with uh, beautiful gold sensors carefully attached to the scalp with soluble pastes and gels. And uh, you can wear them for hours without inconvenience, not like some of these organizations that use a rubber bathing cap that squeezes your head and will cause a headache in less than a half an hour. No, these oh, are, that sounds awful. Yeah, it does. There are, there are groups that do that, though. Hmm. So these electrodes are gold discs. They're carefully attached to the surface of the scalp. And uh, whether you have hair or not doesn't matter. It's actually a little easier if you have hair on the site. And so then the brain waves are picked up. They're measured. And you learn how to increase alpha. Now, going all the way back to the research done by Dr. Dr. Hans Berger, this Austrian psychiatrist who discovered alpha waves, that anxious people have lower alpha. And so it turns out that anxiety will also raise the arousal level to bring you out of that sweet spot in the arousal curve, you know, like Goldilocks, not too tired, not too alert, just <laughs> right. <laughs> That's where you want to be to meditate or to make alpha, do alpha training. Goldilocks mm -hmm. zone. And now, so, it, the, okay, so just uh, kind of going with what you're saying here is it's kind of the, I, I'm not sure if it's the, you know, the chicken or the egg. So is is the, the lack of alpha um, causing the anxiety or is the anxiety causing the lack of alpha? That is a beautiful question. Oh my God, that's so good. It gives me a chance to begin with the following teaching. What I'm about to say is trademarked. Type. Waves rule. Trademark. Brain waves rule. Trademark. What this means is that any experience that you have as a living human being, you can have that experience only when you have the appropriate underlying pattern of brainwaves. And if you change your brainwaves by any method, drug, sex, rock and roll, brainwave feedback, meditation, you will change your experiences. And so brainwaves rule. And mm -hmm. yes, it is the case. I'll give you actually a, a, a live example. Great. We had a woman named Judy who came for training in 1985 with me. She was having panic attacks so bad that she couldn't go out of the house. Mm -hmm. 
this was a problem because she and her husband ran a restaurant. Oh, dear. Yeah. And so she came for training. Uh, you know, she, uh, her sister brought her. And uh, uh, I, I think she had to wear a blindfold to walk out of the house to the car and so on. And uh, so her biggest fear in a panic attack was she would notice that her heart was racing and she would then be even more afraid that she was going to have a heart attack. Mm. Okay, so I'm trying to encourage her to have a panic attack while she's in the chamber. Well, she thinks I'm crazy. What do you mean? I said, I want you to have a panic attack while you're in the chamber so we can get a snapshot and show you what's going on. We were, in addition to the eight channels of brainwaves, we were measuring her heart rate, her muscle tension from her frontalis muscle, left and right hand finger temperature, ambient temperature, and some other measures like breathing. And so when she was able, I think on day five, to have her panic attack in the chamber, the first thing that happened was the alpha went away. 15 seconds later, her heart started to speed up. So what she thought was the source of the fear was actually a consequence of the loss of her alpha waves, which allowed anxiety to flood into the brain. Wow. In fact, for, for my large federal grant, I had to do, well, let's see, they wanted me to do a sham feedback, like, you know, give false feedback, take a recording of one person's brainwaves, play it to another, uh, just to make sure that it wasn't the tones themselves that were healing. Hmm. And, well, that wouldn't work because all somebody would have to do is open their eyes, and if the alpha kept going, if the sound kept going, they would know it was fake. So they said, well, you know, you have to do something or we're not going to give you this quarter million dollar grant. And I said, well, how about the following? How about we do a false feedback? We give them beta feedback and we scale up the beta scores so that they're comparable to that individual person's alpha scores because beta always is much smaller than alpha. So the numbers would be the same and the tones would be the same loudness, but they'll be doing beta feedback. And they said that would be fine. So we did, of course, measure the mood scales before and after the sessions. And when people successfully raised their beta, they were angry, they were unhappy, they were anxious, they were irritable, and they really didn't want to do it. <laughs> Interesting. So we know that if you increase your beta, you're going to become angry and irritable and unpleasant. Mm -hmm. What comes first, the chicken or the eggs? Answer is brainwaves rule. You cannot experience anxiety if you don't have the brainwaves for anxiety. And alpha is not the brainwaves for anxiety. So if you raise your alpha, your anxiety will plummet. So are you in beta then when, you, when you're anxious? Yes. Mm -hmm. Alpha's gone. Interesting. So what happens in Delta? Uh, what, what, what's your state in Delta? Well, it's even deeper than Theta. Mm -hmm. Now, talk to any neurologist, they will poo-poo the idea of anybody making Delta in the waking state because they will only have experienced it when people are in stage three and four of sleep, the two deepest stages, or if somebody's in a coma. Mm. And it's been demonstrated in uh, sleep studies that if you, you know, play a recording of material somebody wants to learn, have the recorder next to their bed, and you only turn the recorder on when they hit delta, they, there is absolutely no learning. Oh. So the neurologists know that. But what we know at BioCybernaut transcends what's known to most neurologists. For example, we know that theta 
occurs in both drowsy theta and what we call mystical theta. If you don't run polygraphs, you cannot distinguish the difference between drowsy theta, which is like little pointy croquet wickets, or mystical theta, which is sinusoidal spindles looking like slowed down alpha. Now with delta, it's even deeper and it's harder to uh, come by. And so, uh, but the thing about delta waves is that they confer siddhis or powers. When you, when I, when I studied at one point, one summer, I hired a whole bunch of professional psychics, uh, brought, paid them their daily rate, brought them into the lab uh, one at a time, and uh, measured their brain waves at rest in baseline conditions, and also while they were doing their psychic accessing, whatever it was, healing at a distance, you know, reading, doing remote viewing, whatever it was. And what they found was, what I found was that the professional psychics had much more theta and delta in their resting uh, baselines. And when they did their psychic accessing, these already amazingly large levels of waking theta and delta increased even more. So we know that this is the basis of psychic activity. And it's also delta waves are present in Kundalini. I made the first scientific report of the brainwaves of Kundalini. And so when somebody has these abilities, well, anybody who's seen a Star Wars movie will remember uh, Obi-Wan, Kenobi, Luke, and the two droids sitting in Loke's speeder as he's trying to enter Dantooine to book passage off planet. And he's confronted by a couple of, uh, you know, group of Imperial stormtroopers. And they say, we need to see your identification. And Obi-Wan goes into this state we know now as a Delta state. And he goes, you don't need to see his identification. And the stormtrooper uh, parrots, we don't need to see his identification. Then Obi-Wan says under his breath, these aren't the droids we're looking for. And the stormtrooper parrots, these aren't the droids we're looking for. And then Obi-Wan goes, move along, move along. And the stormtrooper goes, move along, move along. And so they get through the checkpoint. That was done with Delta Waves. Mm -hmm. We do what are called Jedi mind tricks in that movie series. But it's also something that has to be done with great caution. Because if you use Delta to override somebody else's will, that's one definition of evil. And you will incur very painful karmic consequences of that. And because so you're, you're manipulating. You're overriding another person's will. Mm -hmm. so we do provide Delta trainings, but only after people have done enough Alpha and Theta trainings so that we can be sure that they've done the ethical cleansing necessary because we don't want to you know, create any Darth Vader's. There's also people with Delta can be a hazard to themselves and others. One time when I was still at the training center in uh, Martin Avenue in California, I had an uh, older couple come from Arizona and they were both in their second marriage. And the woman, they had been very unhappy uh, as uh, children, a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. And the woman didn't know what happiness was uh, and uh, had never experienced it, but she had a lot of Delta. So she became interested in uh, psychic healing. And she taught, studied, took courses. And one night she decided she was going to send some healing energy to a lady friend of hers. Well, that night that lady was rushed to the hospital emergency and nearly died. A week later, she decided she would send healing energy to another woman who that night was rushed to the hospital and nearly died. Oh my when goodness. It, when it happened to her third friend, she goes, uh, I guess maybe I shouldn't be sending what I think is healing energy. 
because she had delta waves. She had a lot of trauma, which before she did her alpha training was unresolved. And so what she was doing was sending her pain and her trauma through via her delta waves and nearly killed three friends. Wow. We also had in training one time a former uh, military man who had been in a form of special forces. When he was inducted into the special forces, he, he was measured six ways from Sunday marksmanship, strength, agility, endurance, and they measured his brainwaves. And he had delta waves, naturally occurring indigenous delta. So he was put into a group, a delta force group of 99 other soldiers, and they were used for targeted assassinations. They would, for, you know, easy targets, they'd pick 10 or 20 of them, put them together in a room, show them telephoto pictures or, you know, movies of the target, and then they would go into delta and they would attempt to kill that person. And for high-value targets that were well-protected psychically on the other side, they would bring all 100 of these military people together. And he said their success rate in killing the target was 80%. So, of course, be careful who we train in Delta. I guess. Wow. Interesting. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Gamma. What, what is characteristic of gamma waves? Well, there's only one really credible study that I know of, and it was done uh, by a group and included Richard J. Davidson, then at Harvard. I understand Richard J. Davidson now has a big lab in Wisconsin, and he's continuing these studies. Uh, what he did was to study gamma, um, he recruited eight Buddhist meditators who had a lot of practice with the Buddhist me uh, compassion meditation. Mm -hmm. the, the least experienced had 10,000 hours and the most experienced had 50,000 hours of practice of the Buddhist compassion meditation. Oh. There are, and he measured their brainwaves, but he didn't just measure their brainwaves. He also plastered their faces with muscle detecting electrodes all over their forehead, their nose, their cheeks, uh, their chin, their jaw. The reason being that the gamma spectrum from 40 hertz up to 100 hertz completely overlaps with the frequency spectrum in which muscles produce electrical activity. Muscle spectrum goes from about 10 to 2,000 hertz. So if you think you're gamma waves, which are really tiny little bitty brain waves, and somebody you know, their lip twitches or, you know, their eye blinks, uh, you, there will be, quote, gamma waves produced that exceed by maybe even orders of magnitude the actual tiny little gamma waves that the brain is producing. And so anybody who's doing gamma wave training, if they're not also measuring muscle activity from the face, neck, chin, lips, you know, forehead, mm -hmm. eye, then they're fooling themselves because any even subliminal muscle tension in any one or more of those muscles is going to create frequencies in the gamma waves which are going to be picked up by the filters for gamma and you're going to in fact be training people how to tense muscles rather than increase gamma brain waves interesting to do gamma feedback i've done so myself i know how to sit absolutely 100 percent perfectly still and so I know that what I'm getting is feedback on gamma waves. But if you look at some of the pictures of the research subjects in Richard J. Davidson's lab, 
their entire skin surface of uh, you know face, chin, lips, uh, jaws, forehead. Uh, it's all covered with uh, muscle detecting electrodes which have to be pasted on. And if you don't do that, you're just fooling yourself because you think you're measuring gamma and you're really measuring muscle tension. Wow. Huh. Now, Interesting. Now, what, what Davidson and his colleagues found was that in these advanced meditators with 50,000, 10,000, 50,000 hours of meditation, that their gamma waves were higher than had ever been seen in an undamaged brain before. But that doesn't mean they're as big as alpha. They're still tiny compared to alpha. They're just bigger than the really, really tiny gamma waves that are seen in non-compassion meditators. Mm -hmm. mm. So, so it, well, <clears throat> excuse me. So increasing uh, the frequency of gamma wave, well, I, I guess frequency is probably not a good a good term because we're talking about frequency here. Uh, the gamma is about 40 to 100 hertz. Okay. So, so anything in that range, if it occurs, you would uh, turn on your feedback tone and start accumulating the energy to give scores. Okay. Okay. And this is a state of compassion. Well, you know, that's you, you trying to hang a lot on one, uh, you know, one study. Mm. It, it was there that, uh, or, okay, let's say that um, um, you go outside and the streets are wet. Mm -hmm. Now, does that prove it's raining? No. Maybe a street cleaner a truck went by and sprayed water on the streets. Or maybe it was raining previously. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe there's a tidal wave, you know, coming up on the land. Mm -hmm. uh, the streets be having gamma doesn't mean that you're feeling compassion. And you're practicing compassion. One of the things that happened was the gamma waves increased. Got it. To identify gamma waves with pure compassion uh, goes way beyond the scientific evidence. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's say that, um, actually, I've been wanting to do the alpha training for many years. Uh, oh, that's wonderful to hear. <laughs> uh, ever since, ever since Bill did it. Um, okay. So, so let's say. Well, let's talk, let's talk about Bill's experience a little bit. Okay. Instructive. Now, okay. Bill, your former husband, mm -hmm. uh, had done, I guess, about 10,000 hours of meditation. Some of it uh, included or maybe was added to by the work that he did with Centerpoint, mm -hmm. the whole thing. So when Bill came, he was part of a group of five people, and, uh, but he was the most experienced meditator in the group. Okay. And so on, oh, it might have been day four or five of his training, he said to me, he said, Jim, you notice, I noticed one thing was that uh, there are sometimes when my mind is jumping from one thought to the next thought, that there'll be a little gap where one thought ends and another thought hasn't started yet. He said, in that gap, the tones get really loud. And I go, wow, Bill, you obviously are an advanced meditator to be able to notice the gaps between the thoughts. And then I cited one of Gautama Buddha's quotes to Bill, I said, uh, uh, the Buddha said that enlightenment is the space between any two mind moments. And so 
thoughts, like everything else in the universe, are quantized. And most people like jumping across the stream. They jump from stone to stone to stone to stone. But if you miss and you fall into the water between, that's enlightenment, if you're talking about the stones being thoughts. And, and so I said to Bill, I said, now, Bill, I want you to ignore everything, all the instructions that I've been giving to all these other people. They don't have your depth of meditative experience. And so I want you to only focus on these gaps between your thoughts and the tones that occur uh, when you are in a gap between thoughts and work on making those tones louder. And so he did that the next day and it was wonderful. And on the next day when he did it, he had his first ever in his life Kundalini awakening. And he was electrified and ecstatic by that. And for years after, he was sending out emails to people saying, if you're at all serious about your spiritual development, you must get yourself to BioCybernaut. And he sent many, many people. And because the, he now had Delta Waves, I had one woman, her name was Mary, she came from the East Coast. She said, when I got this email from Bill, I hadn't even opened it yet, and I knew it was something I had to do. Wow. <laughs> now, we can further brag about Bill, because uh, he offered me uh, for free to attend a workshop he was doing in Las Vegas with various other people who were internet marketers, uh, and it was called How to Think Like a Marketer. And one of these other people stood up, and he was sort of like the statistician of internet marketers, and he said, you know, the best that any internet marketer get is a 4% opening rate when you send emails out. You only get 4%. That's the best. Now, he said, Bill Harris typically gets 8%. Now, he didn't know that Bill had had a Kundalini awakening and now had established waking delta in his brain. But I sat there and I thought, hmm, that's very interesting. So it doubled his effectiveness in his internet marketing by having delta and being able to send out the intention that people would open the, the, the letter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's great. That's funny. Wow. Well, it's so fun to be able to share story about your former husband that you didn't know. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot that, <laughs> that I don't know. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, so tell us about the alpha training. What, you know, how long does it take? What happens? Uh, what could somebody expect? Okay, a lot of questions there. Yep. Uh, from the very beginning, my guidance has been to make it a seven-day program. Okay. Over the years, as I've increased the amount of training time and improved the technology and coaching skills, we've increased the effectiveness. Um, and so presently, our seven-day training comes in uh, two forms. One we call the classic or sometimes the premium training, where people go into the chamber once each day. Now, a training day consists of you come into the training center, your heads are measured, electrodes are put on by technicians while you're talking, working with your trainer. And the first day, it's orientation. On subsequent days, you're going over your mood scales or looking at your graphs uh, on your, and your polygraphs from the previous day. Uh, sometimes looking at the polygraphs and graphs can be done at the end of each day uh, if people aren't too tired. And so then uh, you have a high-energy shake uh, with MCT oil in it and uh, plant-based protein powders, maybe some blueberries, maybe some banana. And then you go into your chamber, and the first thing you do is you take your computerized mood scales. 
and uh, feeling words, adjectives, will pop up on the screen one at a time, and you push a button to indicate how much you're feeling that emotion. It could be friendly, clear thinking, sleepy, unhappy, dizzy, sad, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And push a button, zero is not at all, one's a little, two's moderately, three's quite a bit, and four is extremely. And so the computer is measuring your brain waves while you're doing this. It's also scoring your mood. So there's 21 different moods that are measured. And uh, so you get to see how they change over the day. But also the computer is, I wrote the computer program years ago. And uh, in it, uh, I put in some uh, subtleties so that the computer could make an assessment of the accuracy of each one of your answers. And so if there's a 68% chance that the answer you gave is wrong, let's say the word was angry and you put zero. If you, if you, if there's a 68% chance that answer is wrong, the computer will give you one standard deviation or one sigma. If there's a 95% chance your answer is wrong, computer will give you two sigmas. A 99.7% chance your answer is wrong, computer will give you three sigmas. And sigmas go up from there. And so uh, that will be used by uh, the trainer to coach you. Well, let me jump ahead to that. Uh, a major part of the alpha training is forgiveness work. Now, a lot of times people come in and say, oh, I don't have anybody to forgive. And so after they've gone through their mood scale work, usually on the morning of the second day, they have long lists of people to forgive. Let's say the word <laughs> angry and they denied it. Uh, and so the trainer will say, well, you had five sigmas on that. So I think that there are some people that you're angry about. So who is it? Well, maybe then a tear comes out of their eye or, you know, they start to tremble a little. And then, then a trauma will come out that they've forgotten about, repressed consciously or unconsciously. And they tell the story of, you know, what that person did to them. And then that person goes on their forgiveness list. And so after a couple of days of you know, processing mood scales, people may have dozens of characters. Maybe it was the third grade teacher who did or failed to do or, you know, all the way back. Because, you know, as the twig is bent, so is the tree inclined. And uh, I know one Aboriginal woman I trained in Canada who had been depressed for 50 years because when she was 14, she and a male cousin were set out in the woods to pick berries and he touched her breast, didn't, you know, put inside her clothing. He touched one of her breasts through her clothing. And the next day he did that again. And that was so traumatizing for her that she fell into a depression that lasted 50 years until she did her alpha training. So, you know, we're not here to judge why people are depressed or traumatized. We're here to help them undo the trauma. And that's what we do. And forgiveness is one of the very powerful tools. And the way you find out, you know, who you are, you know, poised to forgive, who you would benefit from forgiving is with this these mood scale programs, which are like a plow that grows, goes across the landscape of the mind and turns up the rocks that time and forgetfulness have buried as a coping mechanism. Cause at the time that trauma happened, you weren't capable of dealing with it. Well, now you're in the training, you've got a, a trainer, you've got the technology and you're ready to deal with it. So let's dig up these things and, uh, you know, transform them. Mm-hmm. And how do they get transformed? Well, in the forgiveness process, uh, which is done in the chamber. You're you're listening to your tones. So you bring the you first of all you set up a panel of unimpeachable high beings, judges. These could be angels, uh, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Buddha, uh, Krishna, uh, or or any high being. It, it it you know it can't be your great grandmother. You know it can't be you know any living person. Uh, 
is the, the requirement is the judges be flawless. So you bring them into your courtroom. And the courtroom can be anywhere, in the forest, you know, by a lake, uh, in your garden, or in a regular courtroom. And then you bring in the first person you're going to accuse, and you read the charges to them. I charge you with. And then you take uh, the full two minutes of the next epic to go in and feel the pain that that cost you. Now, if you can connect with the pain, your alpha is going to drop, and then all the scores, or most of them, are going to turn white, which happens in the way I've programmed the computer, so that if you go in the wrong direction, uh, then the scores to indicate are, are white. Go in the right direction, it's blue. If you set a new record for the day, it's uh, green. And so you want to get a majority of whites in attempting to feel the pain. If you do, you move on to forgiveness. If you don't, you can try again you know, to feel the pain. Sometimes, you know, people have the pain blocked. It's armored against. Mm -hmm. You get your whites, meaning that you, your alpha dropped, you actually felt the pain. Then you make a decision to forgive. Uh, you uh, uh, look to see if any good came from what that person did. Uh, you know, maybe there was some good which will help you to forgive. And then most importantly, you walk in that person's shoes. You make every effort to understand the situation from their perspective. And when you can do that, and when you can take a third person perspective on your own role there, uh, some intellectual humility, emotional humility, mm -hmm. then your alpha will start to rise and you'll start to feel good. And uh, the more deeply you forgive, the more your alpha rises, the better you feel. And pretty soon that incident, whatever it was, you can bring it up and you don't cry anymore. You don't feel sad. It's there. It's data. But the pain has been removed from your mind, from your heart, from your life by doing the BioCybernaut 14-step forgiveness method. Now, at the end of each day, when you enter, exit the chamber, you go to a room where we have canopied beds where you sit or lie. Uh, there could be three to five uh, members uh, in the group. The uh, premium double trainings are limited to three. The classic trainings, you could have up to five. And there, the trainer will debrief each person in turn. It's extremely valuable to have your own debriefing, uh, where the trainer will ask you for details that you would otherwise have forgotten very quickly. Mm -hmm. Like when Bernal comes back to a mission, he's immediately surrounded by uh, people who debrief and get all the details. Uh, and then you also get to hear the debriefing of other people, and you learn from them. There's a wonderful perspective. Like, you might think that you couldn't forgive Joe because of the terribleness of what he did to you. Well, in the, in the canopy bed next to you is a woman who's forgiving Fred for something way worse than what Joe did to you. And when you see the light come into that other person's eyes and the weight drop off their shoulders as they forgive Fred for that horrible, horrible thing he did, then you will go, gee, I want some of that. And then the trainer says, well, then you have to forgive Joe. And so it motivates people to do the work by watching other people do the work and visibly get the benefits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. So, so, is the so is the training, it's seven days then? Yes. Now, we do have, we introduced recently what we call boot camp. <laughs> I introduced the uh, premium double where people go into the chamber twice each day. And that's interesting. The premium single or the classic training is 15,000. The premium double is 20,000 for the week. And you obviously get more time in the chamber. 
And in the research I've done, the increases in emotional intelligence are larger, as you would expect, with the premium double than with the uh, classic uh, single. And so the classic is 15,000, the premium double is 20. If I lead a training, it's 80,000, but most people find it really a smart move to go from 15 to 20 to get double the time in the chamber. Well, once we had the premium double well established, then uh, I decided to introduce a five-day version of it, where you go into the chamber every day and you get as much chamber time in the five-day premium double as you get in the seven-day single, okay? Mm -hmm. My trainers report that uh, the seven-day single seems to be more powerful than the five-day premium double, even though the chamber time is the same because you have in the seven-day single, you have two more interviews with the trainer than you do in the five-day boot camp, and you also have two more nights to sleep on it and integrate the result and then come back and work on them. And so we do have a five-day for people who just simply can't get away for seven days, uh, and it is effective. Uh, it's not as effective as the uh, premium single, and it's not as effective as the premium double, but it is available for people who can only come for five days. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, I'd like to uh, ask you about, you just mentioned sleep. You've, do people tend to, and, and, and maybe there isn't a, maybe it's all over the map, but do people tend to sleep better during this time that they're doing it? Or do they, is their sleep disturbed because of all the, all that they're going through? Uh, well, it happens both ways. Mm-hmm. What we can say is that after the training, uh, sleep is very much improved. Uh, But there are a number of factors that occur that may make it more difficult to sleep uh, during the training. And one is time shifting. Uh, We start the first day always at 9 a.m. If we finish at 11 p.m. or 11.30 or 12, when we return the watches and cell phones that we will have confiscated at the start of the day, people look at at the time. And whatever the time is, as they're about to walk out the door, that's, we add 11 hours to that, and that's when they return. And so, let's say they leave at 11 at the end of day one, so they come back at 10. Next day, they leave at 12.30, so they come back at 11.30. Next day, they leave at 2 a.m., so they come back at 1 p.m. And so, this time shifting, although we do provide sleep masks and melatonin and so on, uh, if people haven't chosen a place to stay, that has reasonable quiet and uh, blackout curtains, then their sleep may be disturbed. But there's another reason because they're mining their unconscious for these perpetrators for the purpose of bringing them up into the light to uh, forgive and to heal. And so the brain goes into a churn and sometimes people go home and say, you know, I wanted to sleep, but I was so alert and thinking about so many things that I really couldn't get more than say five hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. So how does that, uh, d- does that negatively affect their training the next day then? Because they're going to be tired. Well, it's interesting. Uh, there have been times where I've had next to no sleep and I went into the chamber to do a tune-up. And when I connect with them, it's like all the tiredness is washed away. And I feel like I had, you know, five nights of 10 hours of sleep per night. Uh, And so this can happen. Now, uh, that's why we urge people 
uh, to get a lot of sleep before they come, sort of bank some sleep. <laughs> of course, to withdraw from onions, garlic, nicotine, caffeine, and alcohol, at least a week or two before you come for training. So the, uh, the experiences of withdrawal from these substances, which can often cause headaches or irritability, you're past that. May I ask why garlic and onions? Oh, absolutely. At the end of this uh, interview, what I can do is I can send you uh, an article that we send out to all of our trainees when they register, it, which is entitled Garlic, a Brain Poison. Oh, my. I mean, that I'm finding very sad because the two things that I think are very important in food are garlic and chocolate. <laughs> well, uh, okay. Um, I'm a chocoholic. I limit when I have chocolate and how much usually because most chocolate contains caffeine. Mm. Undermine your alpha the same way a cup of coffee or, you know, tea or, you know, a caffeine pill will undermine your alpha. Uh, but it's worse with garlic. Uh, we do ask people not to have chocolate in the week before or the week during their training. And let me jump ahead. Uh, when I moved to Canada, uh, in 2008, July, uh, we had a wonderful uh, entrepreneur, philanthropist, come for training in December of 08. Uh, he was the founder of one of Canada's uh, uh, large energy companies. Mm -hmm. uh, had a personal fortune, according to the newspapers, I'm not revealing any personal data, he had a personal fortune of about half a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. He loved the training. And he made $6 million in scholarship funds available for people from his company and also for Canadian Aboriginals who are a very abused and beaten down uh, mm. population of Canada. And so particularly because of the residential school systems. Uh, Georgina Lightning in her film, Older Than America, documented that 50% of all the Indian children sent to those schools died there. Mm. In addition to raped and you know, other abuses. So anyway, he said with his company people that the ROI on a biocybernet training was 100. If he sent somebody for the classic training at 15,000, the employee that he got back, he evaluated it as worth a million and a half dollars more to the company than before he sent him for his alpha training. So, and this man is not a, a slacker. With one partner, he grew his company from zero dollars to two billion dollars in just two years. And so, wow. voice of authority, he said the ROI on the biocybernet training is 100. Okay, so he had, you know, he sent a, a lot of people uh, for training on scholarship. And the scholarship programs are no longer in effect, uh, but we trained over 200 Canadian Aboriginals. And I was invited at one point to speak at the United Nations in Geneva about this work with the Aboriginal people. Now, does this, does the training, like the gains that you have during the training, does that tend to hold or do people tend to slide back or? A wonderful question, really important question. Uh, let me talk first about the IQ data. One summer, everybody who came for training, I administered a very complex and detailed IQ test called the Kaufman Adolescent and Adult intelligence inventory. It takes four hours to administer, and you can only do one person at a time. And so uh, this test was administered uh, before and after the training to everyone 
who did the training that summer. Tedious, a lot of work, but it was really exciting because both of the two main dimensions of IQ, which are verbal IQ, and then the other dimension is mathematical logical, both mm -hmm. dimensions of IQ were dramatically increased. And as we studied the data very carefully, there was no tendency of the increase to diminish for at least a year. We didn't study out beyond a year, but for at least a year, there was no tendency for that IQ boost to fade. It was 11.7 points of IQ that was the average. And so um, there's another study on the benefits, which was done uh, as a part of the federal grant. We were seeing, I was, when I first started the work in the university for my doctoral dissertation, I selected with the advice of senior professors a number of important personality tests to give to people before and after their training. These included the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, called mm -hmm. MM. It included one based on Maslow's theory of self-actualizing personality called the Personality Orientation Inventory, or POI. It included the Myers-Briggs Type Inventory, and it included the state and trait forms of the Multiple Affect Adjective Checklist, the Clyde Mood Scale, and the profile of mood state. So we had six tests that we were giving to people before and after their training. In the federal grant, we actually gave the test twice before, a week apart, and then once after the training. The reason for giving having two pre-measures and at least one post is that if you have two pre-measures, you can detect any regression to the mean and there are mathematical formulas with which you can statistically correct for those uh, regressions to the mean. And so I was seeing fabulous results, absolutely fabulous, where people, like the MMPI, it has eight clinical scales that measure paranoia, depression, schizophrenia, psychasthenia, anxiety, mania, social introversion, and uh, has, I think, three lie scales uh, to detect various forms of lying, faking bad, faking good, and just general lying. So the scales are corrected. Very sophisticated test. Mm -hmm. Like one of the questions is, I like drop the handkerchief. Well, you know, most people, most, you know, people under 30 don't know what that is. And so, um, and I was showing massive, like depression, anxiety, paranoia, schizophrenia in the 98th or 99th percentile before the training and afterwards smack dab in the middle of the normal zone. Now this is unusual, so unheard of by psychological science Psychologists and psychiatrists typically believe that personality is stable over the adult lifespan. And if you're willing to do 20 years of psychotherapy, you can maybe tinker a little bit at the margins with some of the worst uh, uh, dimensions. But they would say, don't even think of trying to change your personality. Well, I'll give you two reasons why. One has to do with study, brainwave studies of multiple personalities, and another has to do with my studies. First, the studies I was doing. So shortly after I won the federal grant, before I really you know, had any data from it, I was elevated to uh, a new position in the university. I was made an assistant professor of medical psychology within the August Department of Psychiatry at UCSF. Shortly thereafter, the chairman of the department decreed that there would be an annual faculty retreat where every faculty member had to attend and uh, they had to spend five, 10 minutes on stage um, talking about the research. So mm -hmm. I figured 
all these psychiatrists know the MMPI like the back of their hand. Uh, I know that because I gave some of the MMPI profiles to some people in the department, and they started telling me things about the people that I would only learn by working with them seven days in a row. And so the MMPI is very good. Mm -hmm. can read your beads pretty well with the MMPI. I mean, it doesn't distinguish love from compassion or empathy, but it's very good at distinguishing paranoia from schizophrenia, from anxiety, from depression. So like, like a telescope and a microscope are both very good at resolving objects, but at very different orders of scale. Mm-hmm. Then it resolves types of psychopathology very well. And so I'm showing these uh, profiles like uh, seven days apart, sometimes eight days apart, uh, hoping, you know, thinking that the, the psychiatrists in the department are going to be thrilled and, you know, excited and want to know more. Well, I'm only halfway through my talk and two senior bearded members of the department have jumped out of their seats, shouting, yelling, shaking their fist, wagging their fingers at me. I was literally shouted off the stage so much for academic freedom. Now, oh my goodness. What was happening to them? Well, if you look at the emotional hierarchy at the bottom, apathy above that, sadness and depression above that, anger above that, fear and above that, joy, they were experiencing fear that this youngest member of their department was going to disrupt their profession, Mm, mm -hmm. technology. And so they couldn't admit being afraid. So what they did was they got angry and they jumped out of their seats, shouted and yelled and shouted me off the stage. So that's how powerful this work is and how, shall we say, unusual. Now, I said there were two sources of data. Uh, I have seen studies brainwave studies that were done with multiple personalities. There's some books on it, like Sybil, Mm -hmm. uh, Three Faces of Eve. And there's been a lot of good research in multiple personalities. I've treated multiples with this at one point, and this would be a separate story. uh, I treated a woman who had 12 alters. And at the end of the, and she, she was so unstable. She came to the training with her psychologist, a lady psychologist, who was jaw droppingly agape, while over the course of the training, all these 12 alters merged back into one core personality. You're kidding. Oh, my goodness. No, for real. The former multiple would uh, call me for years afterwards on Mother's Day to thank me for having given birth to the unified person that she now was. But that's like personal stuff. Okay, so let's do the research done by others. So what they did was they would take no multiples. And, you know, it's a very interesting thing. Let's say that there is a body let's say it's a female body and it's inhabited by Alice and Jane and there's a male personality, let's call him Bill. Now, if Alice is in control of the body, uh, the body is allergic to orange juice. They Mm -hmm. can't smell oranges. They can't smell oranges. They break out in itchy red hives. But if Linda or Bill is running the body, if that personality is in charge, the person can pick oranges, peel oranges, eat oranges, drink orange juice. And so the personality really controls a lot of the physiology. You think an allergy is like inherent in the body. No, it changes with personality. And so remember, personality is a function of brainwaves. Brainwaves rule. Any experience or any personality that you have, you have that only when you have the appropriate underlying pattern of brainwaves. You have low alpha, you're going to be experiencing anxiety. Mm -hmm. Okay. What they found by putting electrodes on multiples and then just sitting back and waiting for that multiple to spontaneously shift from Alice to Linda or to Bill, in the moments of switching personality, there were massive and profound changes in the brainwaves. 
So again, brain waves rule. If mm. spontaneously change enough, you will experience a change in personality. If you learn how to change your brain waves with the biocybernet brainwave feedback training technology and processes, you will have a new personality because you now have new brain waves. Brain waves rule. Cool. Wow. I mean, I've even read where uh, one of the personalities had diabetes and had to use insulin, whereas the other personalities oh. didn't. Absolutely. Yeah. Brain waves are very important and powerful. Wow. So if somebody's interested in, in doing this, oh, what, what, are the, what are the steps? Well, there's uh, to register, uh, it would be ideal to get in touch with uh, Kate O'Connor, Kate at biocybernaut.com. That's K-A-T-E. And uh, she is uh, the master of our schedule, our training schedule for Germany, for Victoria, British Columbia, and for Sedona, Arizona. And so uh, you, the person would say what day they wanted to train and what level training they wanted to do. Do they want to do, if they've done, you know, an alpha one, they would have a choice to do alpha two or theta one. And uh, what dates? Sometimes they, their training dates may be full. And so then Kate would be able to look at the schedule and say, well, you know, that date is full, but the week after is available. And so then they check, yeah, okay. Then there's a registration deposit, which is non-refundable. It's transferable to another date if you need to, but it makes and holds your reservation. And then the balance is due before the start of your training on the first day. Mm -hmm. And if you make your registration deposit, then Kate will send you out links uh, so you can go online and fill out your training documents, which include the garlic as a brain poison document, and uh, the uh, document on the good fats that you should be eating, uh, and an introduction to BioCybernet, as well as the confidential information form and the actual training agreement. Mm -hmm. And then, and you, then need you, to, you need to find uh, uh, a place to stay. Yes, we don't have accommodations, but uh, here in Sedona, there are uh, hotels and restaurants all within walking distance, easy walking distance, like a block or half a block from the training center. In Victoria, British Columbia, people typically stay at Markham House, which is a wonderful B&B, &B, the proprietor of which Bill Perry has actually done the alpha training. And so along with the wonderful breakfast he serves on fine bone china, uh, he can actually provide you know, a little guidance and tips and insights for the, whatever day is coming up in the training, day three, day four, whatever. Nice. And there's the option for the, the Tom DeWinter owns the building in which the training center is. It's a very large house and he rents out rooms. So, you know, it's, it's not, not five star, but it is certainly, uh, you know, the basics are there. It's clean, well-lighted and uh, very convenient. You just walk down the hall to the training center. Nice. And that's in Germany, you said? That's in Germany, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. So uh, how do people contact you? How do people get more information? Although well, you've been very informative, I'm not sure they need a lot more information. <laughs> well, Janine, there is a lot more information because we have uh, many of my publications on the website, which is www.biocybernaut.com. Rhymes with astronaut. And a biocybernaut is to inner space what a bio what an astronaut is to outer space, and so it's spelled similarly: B I O C Y B E R 
N-A-U-T. That suffix, not, N-A-U-T, is a Greek suffix, and it means somebody who goes on an adventure. Maybe you remember in college reading Jason and the Argonauts. Mm-hmm. You Certainly, we have cosmonauts, mm-hmm. uh, astronauts. So, biosite.com is the website. Okay, and there will be a link on the podcast website, too. Awesome. Uh, Oh, this is uh, this has been so amazing. I'm really I'm really excited about the work. I've always been excited about the work that you're doing, and and I can see that uh, it's grown immensely. You've got, uh, and I imagine you're going to be setting up even more centers yes. uh, as you as you keep growing. Um, is there anything that you haven't shared that you'd like to share with people? Well, I've been doing this research since 1971, so there's a lot that I know that I haven't been able to share. I appreciate the generality of the question. And before I ask you to maybe focus a little more, I want to thank you for the super questions that you have asked and the rapt enthusiasm which with you have received my answers in such a way that you inspire me to give even more detail. Oh, thank you, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, this is, this is so much fun for me to interview people and, you know, I've, I've been able to, oh, thank you. I've been able to reconnect with friends and, and meet new friends. And it just, it's been really, really fun. I'm glad I, I listened to the voice that told me to start a podcast because <laughs> I thought it was nuts when it happened. And then as I thought about it, I thought, hmm, that might not be such a bad idea after all. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been really fun. I'm sure our listeners are listening with rapt attention because this is something really so different. I mean, if I hadn't been with Bill, I wouldn't have known anything about this. Oh, wow. Yes. Another thing to thank Bill Harris for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of things to thank him for. That's for sure. I will uh, I will have all this information on the podcast. Well, I have one more I have one oh. more uh, note to add. Sure. When people go to the website, there's an 800 number there and that will ring and you will actually be able to talk directly to Kate O'Connor. Okay. Awesome. All right. And what is the 800 number? Just to... I would have to go online to find it. Okay. That's okay. People can go to biocybernaut.com and they'll find it there. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you. I'm so glad that we finally connected and I appreciate your taking the time because I know how busy you are. I, I really appreciate it. It's 855 798 3814. 855 798. And what was the rest? 3814. 3814. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank this you. has been wonderful. And yeah, take care. Have a wonderful evening. Bye thank now. You. you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much, Dr. Jim Hart, for these incredibly valuable tools that you have created to help humanity. The podcast website is realjanine.com, where you can listen to or download episodes and click on links to my guest information. There's a donate button if you feel inspired to support this work. You can sign up for the podcast bi-weekly blog newsletter to keep up on new episodes, archives, life updates, and healthy recipes. And gee, maybe I'm going to have to take the recipes with garlic out. <laughs> and remember, Janine is J-A-N-E-A-N. 
To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. And check out my podcast YouTube channel with video slideshows of my conversations. Do you know someone who would benefit from my conversation with Dr. Hart? Of course you do. Please share the love. Thanks for listening. Take care and be well.